0: Hello and welcome back to the Fine Fringers Podcast. Today we have Daniel Hoopdellian sharing on what God wants more than anything else. Let's jump right in. Hey guys, good morning. Um, Great to be with you guys. Such an honor. I love the season that you have right now in your life. It's unique. It'll probably never happen, happen again. It's this once in a lifetime season of consecration, season of intentional focus and pursuit of God. And um, God always meets us in those times. He so responds to our yes. He says it in his word that if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. God is not trying to be difficult. When you seek him, you find him. This is a season to seek him, to pursue him with all of our heart. And it's one of the reasons why we discouraged people to have relationships and start them in this season. Because we want you to ask bigger questions than who you are to date next week. We just want to reduce some, that, all the emotional traffic so that we can really pursue the Lord. And I really want to encourage you to get, throw everything at God in this season. And if there is somebody that's pursuing you in a romantic way, then that's not the person to respond to. Because it's a person who elevates their emotions above your calling and the season that God has you in. That's a horrible way to start a, start a relationship. Now you want somebody who fights for your call and for the season God has in your life. So this is your season of consecration. To go after God and lay hold of Him. And incredible stuff happens. We see it over and over and over again. It's amazing what God does in the heart of a young person who just says, Lord, take me. Have your way to whatever you want. God is a good God. Let him do good stuff in your life in this season. All right? Trust him and just go for it. I know you guys are those kind of people. And that's awesome. Um, are there any families? We, I know I, obviously I see a child there, and there was another one there. Do we have families doing DTS here? That is amazing. And that is amazing. You guys are crazy, and we love it. You're in the right place. That is actually absolutely amazing. Bless you. I just want to honor you guys just to decide to do that. That is incredible. Any other married people? All right. Awesome. Yes. Great. That is great. What a great thing to do. And then um, where are the internationals? All are non-Americans. Lots of people. Okay. I would love to know where you're from. I know you're from Norway. But oh, uh, Any others from Norway? Not so many Norwegians. All right, that's awesome. We had a guy from Norway last year who almost died on this outreach, and um, we end up in a hospital in Mexico City, and I have to donate blood platelets to this guy. And anyway, so someone saved the Norwegian last year. You're welcome. <laughs> and um, okay, Norway. What else do we have? Sweden. Sweden. Great. That's awesome. Sweden. Canada. Yes. All right, that's awesome. England, that's great. Thailand? Ireland, Ireland. Northern Ireland, Ireland. that's awesome. You're so welcome, that's great. Netherlands? That's amazing. So I'm from the Netherlands. Where in the Netherlands are you from? Close to Rotterdam? Where? Pineuker, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So he's from the Netherlands. So am I. That's awesome. Uh, what else do we have? Estonia. That is amazing. So cool. Where? Paraguay. Awesome. That's awesome. Egypt. Yeah. Great. Egypt. Brazil. Okay, sorry. Brazil. Awesome. There's a, we all. You always need. Every school needs a Brazilian. You are that person. That's great. Any, any other countries? Australia. Australia? Yes, that is great. Anybody from New Zealand? No. You are from New Zealand. Okay, awesome. Great. That's cool. Guys, that's awesome. It's one of the things I love about this place is that we get people from all these different nations, and it's so inspiring, and it gives an opportunity to learn and see, just experience some of the, just the multifaceted of the kingdom of God. Um, let me just give you guys a little bit about myself. So I'll be with you guys for the next three days. Um, today we'll lay some foundations, then we'll talk about God's heart as a father and his love for us, um, and then how that relates to missions. So for me, I was, I'm was i from the Netherlands, but I was born in Turkey. because My parents were missionaries in Turkey. And uh, so I was born in, in a city called Istanbul. A big city, and um, when I was, at, my parents were working there, they actually went and replaced the couple from America who were working there. And, um, of course, it was very secretive in this nation work. And um, one day, this couple, they are at home one evening, and there's a knock on the door. The man opens the door, and there's a guy standing there with a gun and just shoots him right there, kills him. And uh, the wife moves back and then my parents were sent in to replace their work and it's all super sneaky and everything. And then three years, like when I was three years old, one night, my father died just in his sleep, unexpectedly, suddenly he just died. And um, we didn't even, we don't even know the cause. And he was buried there in Turkey and then my mother moved back to the Netherlands where she was from. And then I think it was about a year and a half later or so she remarried and then they joined YWM in the Netherlands. And so I grew up on a Wyoming base in the Netherlands, and as a kid and into my teenage years, I loved it. It was amazing for me to grow up on a Wyoming base because just all the stuff that was going on, all the stories. And one of my favorite things, just as a childhood memory and in my teenage years, were what we would call reporting nights. And it was the nights that when DTS outreach teams had come back and they would share all the Lord had done in the nations. And it was always spectacular. There are stories of healings, of demons cast out, of divine appointments, of danger and God's protection, just adventure and long bus rides with live chicken on them and strange foods and always a diarrhea story. because <laughs> No outreach is complete without a diarrhea story. I still have a weak spot for those. And hearing all these stories, it just made me grow up with this awareness That God is moving in the nations, and that when you go, God goes with you, and good stuff happens. And so I loved growing up in that environment where God was moving, where stories of the nations were abundant. And um, and so me and my friends, we grew up there, and every summer I'd go on mission trips as a teenager. And uh, one of those summers, I was in my late teens, I was on this mission trip, and um, my best friend was on that trip as well. And um, we were one day walking by this little creek. And as we were walking, we noticed these little frogs that would jump into the water. And him and I, we each caught one of those little frogs. And then, trying to be cool boys as we were, we went up to the girls and we put the frogs in our mouth, these live frogs, on the tip of our tongue. And we'd go up to the girls and you know, stick out our tongue and hope the frog would jump out or maybe it'd just fall off our tongue. And we thought we were incredibly cool. And uh, then, then my friend he takes this frog, puts it in his mouth, and he swallows it live. And I thought, that is so cool, now I've gotta do it. Boys 101. So I take my frog, I swallow it live. Then he starts laughing and he removes the frog from under his tongue. <laughs> he never swallowed it. But he said, You did it, now I gotta do it. And he swallowed it. The girls didn't believe it, so then each of us we went back to the creek, we caught another frog. And then in front of the girls, several of the girls of that team, we each took the frog, we put them in our mouth, and we swallowed it again. And one of those girls' name is Marlise, and she is my wife. Yeah. I think <laughs> I think that was the moment that she thought, What a man. And, <laughs> and we got married. I know you guys are incredibly consecrated and not thinking about any of those kind of things. But after your DTS, guys, just keep it in mind. Who knows? Who knows? We are all for relationships. After a DTS or during debrief, can they during debrief? During debrief, we want all of you guys to date and fall in love and get married. Absolutely. That'd be amazing, right? Be amazing. But not yet. So anyway, so I met Merlise last summer. We got married. We were pretty young. We were 19 and 20 years old. And, and it was great. We, um, we got married, and um, we did some, like, pre-marital counseling. And it was interesting because the first time I talked to Merlise, my wife, the first time we had, like, an actual conversation, she said, um, she got real serious. All of a sudden, I said, Daniel, there's one thing you have to know about me. I was like, oh, you know, that could be either good or bad news. And she said, I am going to be a missionary in Africa. And if you are not willing to move there, this is going to go nowhere. I instantly felt called to Africa. I was like, Lord, send me. I will go with her. And um, now it was actually the one thing we both had in common. But she was serious about it. I, it was at my heart. And, uh, but she was set. She's like, I am going to be a missionary in Africa. I'm moving there. And um, so anyways, we, we got married, we did the premarital counseling, we met with this couple who were uh, experts at doing marriage, and um, we had talked about all these stuff, and then they brought up the subject of children. They said, have you guys made a plan, like, have you guys talked about how many kids, and when, and all of that stuff, and well, we had talked a little bit about it, but not really. it's not like we had a plan or anything, and um, they said, well, well, you should, just make a plan and think it through and be on the same page. <laughs> so we did. And uh, we decided, because we were so young, you know, we, we got married when we were 19 and 20. We decided, let's just be married for a season, five years is what we picked. And uh, and then we'll go and start a family. I mean, it's not always completely in your hands, but you can make a plan, right? And so we did. And um, then, uh, so we we got married, and it was amazing. We, we loved it. We started off our married life young, and we started this youth ministry in the Netherlands called Soul Survivor. And um, it, was, it was great. We saw the Lord do amazing things. And at the same time, we always had this heart for Africa. So we had this huge map of the continent of Africa in our house on the wall. And every day we would see it and we would lay hands on it. And we'd be like, Lord, send us in your time. Like, send us there. We were waiting for that release of the Lord to go and praying for the continent, praying for the nations. and um, then, And we had traveled there several times, but didn't quite feel the release of the Lord yet and um, until the Lord spoke to us and uh, we moved to Kenya in East Africa and uh, at this point we were I think 24 25 somewhere there uh, or maybe 23 24 and um, so we moved to Kenya East Africa and we love Kenya we love Africa just amazing and um, we're there and uh, started to pioneer this mission space and then while we were in Kenya we came to our five-year wedding anniversary right and um, Marlies. She was ready to have children. She was so excited. And um, I wasn't thinking about it that much, to be honest. And um, so she brings up the subject. She's like, hey, Dan, can we talk? Yes. She said, hey, we've been married five years now. What do you think? Should we start a family? And I almost had a panic attack. (coughs) And it freaked me out, to be honest. I thought, oh, my gosh, Marlise, that's a big responsibility. Like, I don't want to mess up somebody else's life. Like, have a child. That's a big deal. And I said, I don't, I don't quite feel ready to be a father, to have kids. And, um, and we talked a little bit more about it. And she's like, no, you can't. And I was like, I don't think I can. And then I thought, what, what, what if we get a son? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, what if we get a son? And like every guy has like father issues. How do I know that I can be a good father? Like what if emotionally I'm not able to relate to my son? What if I can't tell him I love him and, or, or express my feelings or any of that stuff? What if I just can't do it? And then all of a sudden, I just saw the whole scene happening. That Marlise would get pregnant. We'd get a boy. And then I wouldn't know how to love him well and be a father and it would whatever. And then I thought, he's gonna just going to grow up so sad and broken and lonely. And then he's going to do his DTS and the Father Heart of God week. I told Marlise, he's going to be the one crying the whole time. And they're going to counsel him through all the trauma that I inflicted on him. And he's, they're going to have to heal his heart for all that I did. I said, I can't do this. And Marlise is like, wow. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't think I'm ready to be a dad. And Marlise realized I meant it. And she said, OK, then, then we'll wait. And I thought, thanks. That was, <laughs> that was easy. I think somewhere I thought that bought me the next five years, but it didn't. One month later, Marlise comes back. And she's like, Daniel, are you ready now? I said, "Dad, no, like nothing's changed. I'm still the same guy. I don't think I can be a dad. I don't think I could do this." And then my wife, who's also the more spiritual and wise of the two of us, she said, "Daniel, you may never feel ready to be a dad." And I said, "Yeah, I can see that." <laughs> and uh, she said, "Why don't we pray and ask God if he thinks you're ready? And cuz he would know better. And then you can be confident." And, uh, and I thought about it for a little bit, and I thought, actually, that's a great idea. Because if he says I'm ready, he would know better. And then also I thought, if I mess up later somewhat, I can maybe somewhat blame God or something. <laughs> I thought, this is like a win-win. And so we pray. Then we're both the two of us. We didn't tell anybody. We just sat there in our bedroom on our side of our bed, and we just prayed together, holding hands. So we're like, Lord, speak to us. Show us. If you think I'm ready to be of that, would you speak to us? And we just kind of waited on the Lord for a little bit. We didn't hear anything or get anything. And so we're just like, okay, we just kind of held it before the Lord. And we're like, Lord, just show us, right, if you think I'm ready. And again, we didn't tell anybody this. We just went on with our lives. And just a couple weeks later, we're in Europe speaking at this youth conference. And while we're there, the host of the conference, he said, there's this couple from England. They want to meet with you and pray for you. And I had heard about this couple. It was this really elderly couple from England. And this man was apparently really prophetic and um, kind of lived this hidden life of prayer, very contemplative, kind of like a monk almost, like just really withdrawn, like deep life of prayer and godliness. And uh, he would sometimes travel around where the Lord would send him. And he would prophesy over people. But then here's the crazy thing. So the story is crazy, but it's honestly true. At times when he would prophesy over people, supernaturally, oil would appear on his hands now I've been in some meetings where people were like look I've got oil and you're like is that oil or sweat (laughs) but with this guy apparently it would be dripping off his hands so I had heard about him I called the oily hands man and Marlise and I we had talked about the oily hands man he was there we didn't know him we didn't meet him so now the host of the conference he's talked to Marlisa and he said this couple from England they want to pray for you and, and I was like, Marlise, the oily handsman, like, we should totally have him pray for us. And we're so excited. So we, they take us to some hospitality room in the back. And there, we, there they come and we meet with them. And I want to introduce myself. And the oily handsman, he says, Shh, I don't want to hear anything. I need a clean slate. I just want to only hear from the Lord. I was like, okay. I mean, that's kind of intense, but kind of cool. And uh, so they said, we just want to pray for you. I'm like, okay. So all they knew was that we were missionaries in Africa. They didn't know anything about us. They knew our names. That's it. And um, so they're like, we just want to pray for you. And so I'm standing here. Marlise is next to me. And the wife was standing in front of me and and the oily handsman in front of Marlise. And um, then they start to pray, but the man says nothing. And um, later we found out he just waits on the Lord. And if the Lord doesn't give him anything, he doesn't say anything. And obviously God was not giving him anything. He was just standing there quietly. And his wife was praying, but real slowly. And so the wife was like bless them lord more lord it's like yes and after a while i'm feeling nothing i'm getting impatient i'm just ready to move on with my life and then all of a sudden the husband he says look i've got something and marlise and i we open our eyes and he's holding out his right hand and guys i am not lying i kid you not The middle three fingers of his hands were dripping with oil. It's like he had dipped it in a cup. And I looked at it, and I just burst out laughing. Because in my brain, that just didn't work. I just didn't get this. And I just started laughing out loud. And the old old man just stands there looking at me. And then I stopped laughing. And he said, I have a word of the Lord for you. And obviously, he had our attention. And he turns to me, he looks at me, and says, Daniel, this is you. And this is Marlise. And God's saying, he's always in the middle of your marriage, your relationship. And then he looks at me, but also he's saying, now is the time you are ready to have a child. <laughs> yeah, and I could not believe this. And then he said, let me pray for you. And he prays for us and he puts his one, blesses me, puts his finger on my forehead, then on Merlis. And he blesses us with, uh, with a family and all of this. And as he prays for me in an instant, I feel delivered of all my fears. I had genuinely fears associated to being a father and starting a family. And some of it's related to my own story. We'll talk more about it yesterday. But in an instant, all those fears lifted and something shifted in my heart. And I wanted to be a father. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have children. And so they finished praying. And really said, we went straight to the hotel room. And no, just <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But Marlies was pregnant within a month, and you guys are here think think clean thoughts. <laughs> so consecrated, and so anyways, Marlise is pregnant within a month. We're back in Kenya, and we do an ultrasound, and it's a boy, right? It's a boy, and I'm so excited right now. And I tell Marlise, Marlise, I love this boy. And I like he's like in the stomach or whatever, but I like I feel so ready to have this child, and um, so then we're 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 praying and thinking about a name, and we decided to call him Aiden, A-I-D-E-N. It's a Scottish name in Gaelic language, and it means fire, and we thought, that's cool, and uh, so we wanted to call him Aiden, and uh, we didn't tell anybody this. In the Netherlands, it's not so much the custom. I mean, it's changing a little more recently, but not so much the custom to announce the, the, the gender or the name before the child's born, and we didn't tell anybody, and then there was this other guy. He was also a missionary in Kenya. And um, one day, he comes up to me This is while Marlise is pregnant. He said, Daniel, I think God spoke to me about your child. I said, what do you mean? He said, I think you're going to have a son. His name is fire, and the meaning is significant. (laughs) And I I said, I can neither confirm nor deny because I didn't want to give it away. But obviously, he was right. And um, so then Marlise is like, you know, she grows, and she's like eight months pregnant, nine months pregnant. And it comes to her due date, and Aiden is not born that day. And um, then it's one day late, he doesn't come, two to three days late, a week late, he doesn't come, two weeks late, he doesn't come. At this point, we're desperate. We're like, this kid needs to come. We're like, what do we do? We tried everything. Do we cast him out? Like, what do you do? <laughs> like, he's not coming out. He's two weeks late, and finally he's born. And I've got to give you a little backstory here. The, um, a- apart from the Bible, the book that has probably impacted my life the most is just the simple old little book written by a man named Frank, Frank Bartleman. Frank Bartleman, and it's called Eyewitness Account of the Azusa Street Revival. And what the book is about is about this incredible move of God that began in the early 1900s. And it's now known as the Azusa Street Revival. And on April 9th, 1906, the fire of God fell in this little building on the Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And an incredible global revival broke out that began there when the fire of God hit that building on April 9th. Nineteen hundred and six, and this man Frank Bartleman, he was part of that revival, and the Lord really used him to see a birth in prayer, And, and he describes how God moved in incredible power, and it was just an amazing time with incredible manifestations of God's presence and power, and again, it spread from there all over the world, and people came and traveled to Los Angeles from all over the world to experience the revival. When the stories that people traveled to the city and would ask, where is the revival? And people would say, just walk that way until you feel it. There was this one area where the presence of God was manifest. And, people, and it was like this one area within several blocks where people would cross the street, get to the other side, and just immediately come under the conviction of God and fall to their knees, weeping over their sin. It happened several times that people called the firemen because this building was on fire, but it wasn't on fire. The Holy Spirit like manifested through flames on that building where they would gather. Just incredible. And uh, anyway, so I read that book in my teenage years, and it deeply moved me. And it gave me a vision for a life of prayer and for revival and a hunger for God's presence and all, all, all that stuff. And so the book is, is, for me personally, it's just significant in my journey with the Lord. So then Adam, he's one week late. He's two weeks late. Finally, he's born. And the day he is born, his name means fire, right? The day he is born is April 9th, 2006, to the day the 100 year anniversary of the fire of God fell in Azusa. Is that crazy? Is that crazy? I'm only telling this to tell you guys. I mean, it's part of the introduction, I guess. But God can take any weak and broken area in our lives, and when we bring it to God, he can take it and he can write an amazing story. It's incredible what God can do with a broken heart if you give Him all the pieces. I say so again, don't hold back. Throw everything at God. Go and get Him. Lay hold of Him. Seek Him with all you've got. You will never regret it. There's nobody that regrets and said, "Man, I wish I could have just chilled out more. I wish I could have just, you know, held back a little from God." Nobody does that. Also, I've never had anybody say come up to me, or I've never heard of anybody. I wish, gosh, I wish I could have dated. I wish I could have thought more about people of the other sex my DJS. Nobody regrets pursuing God because he's always better than you think he is. He is absolutely incredible. God never disappoints. He's an amazing God. Anyway, so we were living in Kenya. We pioneered this mission space. We started church planting, my unreached people group in northwest Kenya, the Turkana region, one of the poorest areas in East Africa. And um, over the years, we were there for eight years. They became a reached people group. And um, we were not the only ones working among them, but leading the charge. And, and it was amazing and seeing God transform um, a, a region. And um, we started a bunch of children's homes and a rescue home for teenage girls who have been raped and gotten pregnant. And these girls were all 12, 13, 14 years old. Old was 14. And these are now single moms, and they've, they're, they're pregnant and it's just crazy. And so we have this house where we disciple these girls and and teach them to, I mean, walk with the Lord, but also be mothers to their children, and they still got to go to school and all that stuff. And um, we did um, the call, the precursor to the send. We did the stadium gathering in Kenya and Nairobi, and um, we did a lot of outreaches in schools and just all kinds of stuff, honestly, in Kenya, but then also up to Somalia and the Congo, all over East Africa, and we loved it. Again, we love Africa. And so much of the future of the church and the missions movement is really going to, we're going to see it coming out of Africa. We're going to see it coming out of Africa. God is doing incredible things on that continent. And it's just so exciting to, to witness and to see where this is going and to be a part of. Um, I'm, my guess will be that a bunch of you guys will be going to Africa on your outreach. And it's going to be amazing. So we were there in, in Kenya for eight years. And um, our, our son Ada was born. Then our daughter Leona Three kids, Ada and Leona, were born there. And um, then while we were there, also, we, we had uh, dogs. We had two Rottweilers and two German Shepherds because we were breeding them. They were like our watchdogs, and they were somewhat intense. We needed a watchdog, and I thought, let me just go really, really get watchdogs. And so we got these dogs. We trained them, and they would attack on command. Thankfully, we never had to use it. But it was just amazing. It just felt cool. And then um, one day... Uh, like where we lived, our house, the, um, there was uh, all, there were always cows that were grazing by our house around on the, on the streets and whatever. And um, whenever the cows came too close to our fence, the dogs would always bark at them to kind of keep them away. And our dogs always felt awesome. They're like, this is our land and, you know, always keeping the cows at bay. But one day we were traveling and, and there was somebody taking care of our house and he had a cow. And typically when he was at our place, like he would just have his cow walk around in the street. And uh, so this time he, uh, he was t- watch, taking care of our place while we were traveling and the dogs and everything. And, um, and he had to go run an errand in town. But he had a bit of a dilemma. He's like, okay, I, I can lock the-, the gate for the house, but then what do I do with my cow when I go to town? And so he thought, okay, let me just lock up the dogs in their cages. They have these outdoor cages, the two Rottweilers in a cage and the two German Shepherds in a cage. And he thought, I'll just bring the cow into the yard, let it walk, graze there while I go to town. So he does. He locks up the dogs, brings the cow in, and the dogs immediately go crazy because they're like intruder, right? And, um, but uh, they're locked up. So then he, cl- he locks the gate, and he goes to the town. What happened is that the two Rottweilers broke out of their cage and started to attack the cow, and they actually killed the cow. It was incredible. I was so proud of my dogs. But people came, like we lived on a hill, people came from the valley below to the noise the cow was making. And this huge crowd was standing by around our house. Everybody was afraid to intervene because of these dogs. And ever since then, where we lived in Kenya, we didn't have an address. There was no street name or anything. So we would always explain visitors, like, take this turn and by that tree you go there. And then the house with the blue roof, take it left or whatever. and whatever. Um, but since that day when that happened, in our town of about 200,000 people... Any, any visitor we would have, we could always say, just go to the city center, take any taxi, like a motorbike taxi, normal car taxi, a bicycle taxi, and just tell them you're going to Umbakali, which in Kiswahili means dangerous dog, and they'll take you right to our house. It was amazing. We had a great reputation. And um, then we had elections in Kenya, and there was post-election violence, and for a, a while it was just crazy all over the country. And a lot of tribes were fighting each other, and uh, roadblocks being set up, and they were checking people's IDs. And if you were from an opposing tribe, they would kill you. And um, gangs were going around at night, going door to door, and it was just horrible stuff. And in that time when that happened, this this one guy had just bought a dog from us, this Rottweiler. It was his watchdog, and he lived in this city where his tribe was like the minority, and it was kind of dangerous. And uh, so he wanted a good watchdog, and then at night, um, during the day, he would have the dog locked up. And then at night, he would let the dog just kind of roam in their yard. And, um, so, um, and then around his house, like around the yard, he would have like this a wall with a big gate. with A gate with like two big doors that opened so a car could drive through. And then inside one of those gates was like a door that you could just step through. And in that door, there was an opening so that when you're on the outside, you could stick your hand through and pull this latch that opens and closes the gate. And um, so at night, he would have the dog just walk around the yard to first protection. So one morning he wakes up and he's ready, gets ready to go to work. And he opens the door to his house and the dog greets him all happy. And um, he wants to go over to his car and uh, to leave and go for his work. And he looks at the gate and he notices there's blood on the gate, like in the door, under the, like the opening on the door. And he's, he's kind of curious. He, so he, he walks up there and he looks and he sees two human fingers laying in the grass in front of the door. And he's like, oh, my goodness, like, what's going on? And he opens the gate, and there's blood on the other side, and there's some weapons, like like machetes and some clubs laying there. And he's like, oh, my goodness, what happened? And so probably what happened, what was happening those days is that a gang came to attack him, and they tried, somebody tried to open the gate from outside, and the dog bit off two fingers, and they ran away. This guy was so, he was so thankful. He was so happy. He called us. He's like, you probably saved my family's life. is that awesome? Yeah. So we had great dogs, and then um, <clears throat> one, uh, one time we're traveling in, uh, or we found some, pe- some people had, they had been hunting, and they found this baby monkey that was detached from the mother and took the baby monkey, and I, I, we noticed these guys town, We gave them some money, and I bought this little tiny baby monkey, and um, I thought my kids would love this, and I loved it too. So we had this great, awesome little baby monkey, and right at that time, one of the, the I mean, the female Rottweiler had just, given birth, I was nursing the pops, and I kid, yes, I kid you not, the monkey drank from the mother dog, is that crazy, and um, the monkey and the dog became real friends, and so they, the, the mother dog would just run around the yard with the monkey riding on, the, on her back, it was amazing, and then I was traveling in northwestern Kenya, and um, I was there, and some people, they had found a dick I don't know if you know what a dick is, a dick is like a deer, but they're like miniature deers, and like with a real pointy nose, And um, they have them a lot in that region. And they had a a baby Dick Dick. And it was like a super tiny deer. I mean, maybe this high, like really cute. I thought my kids would love this. (coughs) I would love this. And uh, so I smuggled the Dick Dick on the airplane back home. Yeah, in my backpack. And um, I wouldn't do it on an international flight. too risky. But on a domestic flight, I brought it home. And it was amazing because you'd have the Dick Dick running and then the dog with the monkey on it. Otherwise, it was just incredible. And my kids loved it. And um, also we had turtles and chameleons and all kinds of animals. Anyways, it was great. Life in Africa, it's just so fun. And um, so anyways, we're there. We love our life in Kenya. And then all of a sudden this, we're in the Netherlands. And this real father in the faith in the Netherlands, he comes up to us. And he said, now I've got a word for you in Merlise. And he said, I feel like the Lord says he's going to shift your base back to the West. But that your work in Africa will continue. And that you'll serve Africa better from that place. And when he said that, we didn't actually really want to hear that. Because our dream was to stay in Africa. We wanted to be in Africa the rest of our lives. And uh, so we just kind of were like, yeah, thanks. And we just kind of shelved it and went on with our lives in Kenya. And then a year later, he contacts us. And he said, Down release, I feel this same word, but even stronger. God is saying to you, he's going to shift your base back to the west. Your work in Africa will continue, and you'll serve Africa better from that place. And when he said it this time, it just shook us. I mean, we felt the Lord had spoken to us, and we couldn't ignore it. And so it opened our hearts and it led us into this tr- season of transition, and we ended up moving to Kansas City, because it's one of the most exciting places in the world to live. Okay. Not, not really, but it was OK. it was. Okay. <laughs> Amazing barbecue. And uh, so anyways, we ended up moving, long story short, to Kansas City and uh, joined the International House of Prayer where we, um, with, with our friends, started leading this mission school called ACTS. And, um, and it, it was amazing. And we were there for a number of years in Kansas City. Our youngest, our David, was born there. So we got three kids, our oldest, Aiden; our daughter, Leona, and then our youngest son, David. And um, he was born in Kansas City. And so I was born in the Middle East, my wife in Europe, the oldest two in Africa, the youngest in North America. And who knows where the next one's going to come from. And we have a dog from Minnesota. <laughs> anyways, Minnesota. <laughs> and uh, same so anyways, in Kansas City, we're part of the leadership team there at IHOP and training young ancestry missionaries. And, uh, and it was an amazing season. It's just an incredible place. And um, at the same time, we're like, Lord, you spoke to us about Africa. We know there's this call to missions. And here we are in this room with no windows praying for the nations, praying for God to send laborers. And we're like, send us. Like, we want to go. And, um, and we're there. And we would lead prayer meetings for God to send missionaries. And people that were on our team, they would move to Indonesia, to Iraq, I mean, to all over the world. And we were stuck in that prayer room. And it was, at times it felt so frustrating. At the same time, we knew this is where the Lord had us, kind of on lockdown for a season, just to go deep in prayer and in the Word. And, and it was a great season. At the same time, we are always like, Lord, send us. And anyways, after a season, the Lord started speaking to us again, and it led into this new transition. And we ended up moving here to Kona, back with YWM, our roots, it's where we grew up. It's where I met my wife. We got married on the YM base, right, in the Netherlands. And um, we, we moved here, and we've been here for a few years now, and we're just so grateful to be here. This place is amazing, this mission space. And um, we just, it's just such an honor to be a part of this and to even just get to hang with young people like you guys. And I love that my kids see people like you. You guys are their examples. You guys are the cool kids, right? And they look at you guys, and they see a group of young people that are going after God. And and I know it's not all perfect, and it's fine. Neither is the next guy. But there's something in your heart. You want to do this thing right. You want to go after God. You know there's something more. And I love that my kids see it. Young people on fire young people pursuing God and they constantly see young people move to the ends of the world we're constantly planting new bases i mean that's what we do right this is a mission space we train and send missionaries that's what we do this is missions organization we train and send missionaries the end goal is not the training it's the sending we train to send missionaries. And so that's what we're constantly doing. This whole, If we are not sending missionaries to the lost, the last, and the least, then this whole place doesn't make sense anymore. Because all of this is for the sending to the nations. And so we, we love being in the midst of all of that. And, and, and there's many people that have sat before you in these very same seats. And they now speak in Arabic. They now speak in Farsi. They now speak in Kiswahili because they are not here. They are over there in these nations, and they're serving, seeking to make the name of Jesus great in these nations. These people are our heroes, and and you won't see most of them because they're not here. They're there, right? And many of you guys also, I believe, from this school will also go, and it's super exciting to me. Anyways, you don't have to worry about that too much now. Just go after God. and One day you're like, what am I doing in Pakistan? God, what happened (laughs) God will get you. God will get you. <clears throat> and um, so anyways, so we, we live here. My wife and I are three kids. And um, one thing I love is scuba diving. I'm a dive instructor. I love scuba diving. It's just so fun. Got to do something that keeps me sane in the craziness of our lives. I just love to get underwater and just chill with sharks. I'm mean, like a sh- shark specialty instructor. So I train people to dive with sharks, and I just love it. There's one spot here, the Honokao Harbor, where we frequently see tiger sharks. They're like the great white sharks of the, of the tropics, and they're just amazing. There's this one shark, it's the most famous one's called Laverne. There's a place, a bar, I think, that's called after Laverne, and um, it's like a 16-foot, like five-meter-long tiger shark, and it frequents there, and it's just amazing when you're underwater and this giant shark comes by. They're just so beautiful and powerful, and it's a bit of an adrenaline rush because, you know, if they, I mean, they could easily take a bite and rip you apart, but they don't, right, they don't, not for the most part, and it's just exciting to (laughs) see just the beauty underwater, and creation, and all of that, anyways, great to be with you guys, we, um, should we, can we take the break now, is that too early, is that too early, (laughs) all right, um, Let's jump in just a few foundational things that we just want to lay out for the next two days. And I'm going to begin by reading a package, a passage, I can say this, a passage from the last book in the Bible. It's called the Book of Revelation. So the Book of Revelation was written by John, one of Jesus' disciples. It said at a later stage in his life, he's actually in exile. All the disciples, are struggling with persecution. Many of them are being martyred. And um, John's exiled on this island. And on this island, the Lord speaks to him and gives him visions and messages, things related to the future. And the Lord Jesus returned back to the earth. And um, But also gives John several specific messages for churches in what is today in Turkey. And, um, and so... In chapters 2 and 3, we find these messages. And it's seven different messages directed to seven different communities, different churches. And these were real historic communities, churches in these cities. And, um, and so there's one message that we're going to look at. Again, it was a specific message that spoke to this group of people that lived in a city called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. But there's some stuff in there, and it's also not for no reason that it's in Scripture that might be applicable to us as well. And um, so I'm going to read to you guys in, in Revelation chapter 2, this first message. And it's a, again, it's a message from the Lord Jesus. He gives it to John to pass on to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he says to these guys. I'll start from verse 2. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And that you've... T- <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. And that you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And you found them liars and you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he ends with this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So a message from God to the church in Ephesus. And um, he says to these guys, this is how he begins. He says, guys, I know you, your works. And, and, And it's more than just I know about you. He's like, I fully know you. All you do, but all your intentions, all your thoughts. He's like, you are completely known by me. Nothing is hidden. I understand you, and I see you. I know you. And he says, I see your works. He says, and then he starts to honor them. Because these guys were suffering persecution, but they were not quitting on God. They were persevering through the hardship of persecution. And he honors them. And then he says that they were doing many good works. And these guys, they were. They were a very active bunch. Uh, We don't know all that they did, but they were not just passively sitting at home. They were serving the Lord. And who knows all that they did. And so Jesus honors them for all their good works, for their perseverance through hardship, and that they were sticking together. And he says then that they were um, honoring God's works because some apostles had come, they were false apostles. And they had come and they were teaching a different gospel. They were not preaching the truth. And these guys were in Ephesus, they were listening to these false teachers. And they're like, no, this is not what Jesus taught us. This is not true according to scripture. And they rejected these, these false apostles. And Jesus, says, thank you. Thank you for standing up for truth. Thank you for guarding the truth of the gospel. And again, he honors them for it. And this church, it had a great reputation. They were leaders among the churches there in that region. Again, suffering through persecution, but persevering, doing great things, and staying true to the word of God. And, um, but then Jesus says this. Nevertheless, he said, there's one thing I have against you. And I remember reading this once and thinking, gosh, I wish Jesus could say that to me. There's only one problem in my life. The problem here is that the one thing they were missing was actually the most important thing. He said, you have lost your first love. What he's saying, you don't love me the way you did at first. And then he says, look at the height from which you've fallen and come back to that place of first love. That place of passion for me, that that spiritual excitement in your heart over who I am. He said, guys, there was a day, look back, there was a time that you were on fire. You were in love with me. There was a hunger. There was a desire to know me, to spend time with me. And he said, and you've lost it. And you're still doing all the stuff. But I look at your heart, and the fire that was there has grown dim. You've lost that first love, that initial falling in love with me. And so he says, look at the height from which you've fallen. You were in a great place, but now you're not. And this is not a side issue to God. This is the main issue, right? Because what is the first and greatest commandment? To love, exactly. The greatest commandment in Scripture is that we love God. All of our hearts, all our mind, our soul strength, with all we've got basically. It's what he wants from us more than anything else is simply that we love him. Simply that we love him. And so these guys, they they lost some of that. And your first love, it doesn't just all of a sudden disappear. It doesn't just fall off you. It's not like you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you're like, gosh, where did my first love go? It doesn't just fall off you. We lose our first love By the lifestyle that we develop and the choices that we make. It's the choices you make and the lifestyle that you develop that can cause the fire in your heart to grow stronger or to grow weaker. And so when Jesus tells these people to repent, what he's saying is that by making the right choices and developing the right lifestyle, you can come back to that place of first love. You can come back to that place where your heart is burning for Jesus. And that's what he wants for each one of us. That's what you were made for. Christianity is not just this system of rules. It's a love affair. It's a relationship with a real person. And that's what God wants for you. That's what you were created for. To live with a heart in love and on fire for Jesus. And so this passage here, I I love it. And also it makes me nervous because it tells me that it's possible for a church community to be real active, to do all the good things, to to, to, to be faithful to Scripture and to persevere through even persecution and yet to lose their first love. And what's possible for a church is possible for an individual. It's possible for you and for me. To have this outward appearance of being this great Christian, so active, right? Always showing up at church, reading a a chapter in the Bible every day maybe, supporting a child in Africa or whatever, going to camps, doing a DTS, and yet to have lost your first love. And then God would say to you the very same thing. He would say, look at the height from which you've fallen. There was a time that you were in love with me. And it wasn't about performance or trying to look good or having a reputation. You're just hungry for me. You wanted nearness. You wanted that real heart connect. That's what God created you for. He created you for himself to have a relationship with him, deep friendship, that heart connect with him, real reality. You want to never just settle for just a mere outward appearance of Christianity. You were created to live with a heart on fire, with a heart in love, with a hunger for His presence. So, God would say the same thing for, to us He would say, I want you to repent, make the right choices, develop the right lifestyle, come back to that place of first love. Again, it's not a side issue to God, this is the main issue. It's what He wants more than anything else, is that we love Him. Yeah. And so if loving God is the most important thing according to God, then I think we would do well to make it the most important thing according to us as well, right? Yeah. If, if, if God's priority for our lives, His highest calling for our lives is to love Him, then we should probably make that the, high, the greatest pursuit of our lives. Yeah. That we should be more intentional about this than anything else, that we grow in love for God. See, so at this stage in your life, many of you, and, and, and for many of us, it, I mean, to some degree, it's all our lives. We're always trying to figure out our calling, right? What are we called for? And many times when we think about our, our calling in life and our purpose here, we so often think it's, it's all about what we are to do for God, how to serve Him. And that's not bad, but I know your calling scripturally, It has a whole lot less to do with your size of your ministry and a whole lot more with the size of your heart. You are called to love the Lord your God. It's the highest calling of your life. Biblically, your calling has a lot more to do with who you are to become than with what you are to do. Now, of course, we all have our assignments from the Lord. There's things He calls us to to do for Him, to partner with Him, to serve Him, to build His kingdom, absolutely. But your primary calling in life is to love God. And so it should be the number one focus of our lives. The number one intentional thing we pursue should be that we grow in love for God. It's the greatest commandment is that we love Him. And here is the people and I hope in that passage and take some time to, to read it through and pray through it sometime. I hope you can touch some of the passion of God. Here's this church community in Ephesus. Again they were leaders among their in in their region and god tells them actually if you guys don't get back to the place i'm going to remove you from your place of influence among the churches like god's not messing around with these guys and it's the the passion of god to have relationship he's like it's not enough for me i don't want slaves i don't want just workers i want lovers i want a relationship it's not enough for me that you're just doing stuff for me i want you i want your heart I hope you can feel the emotion of God. He's pursuing these people. It's like, I want you near. I want your heart. I want your affections. I'm jealous for that. He doesn't just want workers. He wants lovers. Great lovers make great laborers. We're called to love God with all we've got inside of us. We're called to love him more than anything else, right? When I got married, I told you guys, my wife and I, we got married. We were young. We were nineteen, twenty, 20. It was super exciting. I remember our wedding day well. Obviously, it would be bad if I didn't. And um, on that day, we got married in this uh, at the Wyoming base in this meeting hall that we had there. And um, on a day, I, I had to wear a suit. I'm not much of a suit guy, but obviously had to on that day. And um, on on that day, and, and weddings in the Netherlands are a little different than in the U.S. <laughs> I've officiated a bunch of weddings in America; and they're always so different than the way we do it in the Netherlands. And uh, so, in the Netherlands, we're all there in in the church; all the people are gathering. And um, in, in America, many people then come walking down the aisle, right when the service starts. And it's the I don't know, like all the the, the, the girl, uh, I mean, all whatever. All the people that walk down the aisle, the flower girl, the, so the grandmother. The, the bridesmaids, the guys, what are the guys called? Grooms, groomsmen. I, like everybody walks down the aisle, right? And so in the Netherlands, not so much. So in the Netherlands, so we're, we're there at the church, and I'm sitting already in the, in the, in the, in the, there in the church. And I was incredibly nervous. I was very nervous, but also very excited because I had looked forward to this day, and I'd have Marie, release and she couldn't leave anymore. Voluntarily. But, but it was great. I was going to have my wife. I was so excited. And as I'm sitting there, next to me is my best man. And um, when, when it was time to begin, the, mu- the music starts playing. And um, then me and my best man, we stood up and then everybody stands up and everybody looks to the back doors, right? And the doors open. And um, we only had a, a little flower girl walk down the aisle and then my now father-in-law with Marlise. And so the doors open, and this flower girl comes walking down the aisle. I had no interest in the flower girl. I just keep looking at that door in the back. And then there, Marlise appears with her dad. And she looked amazing beautiful white dress and her hair and beautiful smile. And it was just an incredible moment. And she started walking down the aisle. And her dad escorts her all the way down the aisle to the front to me and um, kind of. Delivers the package or whatever. Like we sit down. Gives me a little uh, little thread and we sit down. And uh, the service began and we got married and it was amazing. As sometimes I think about our wedding day and imagine if this would have happened. It's a little crazy, but just imagine it with me. That we were all sitting there in the church. The music begins. I'm standing. My best man's standing. Everybody's standing. We all look at the back door. The doors open up. The flower girl nobody cares about walks down the aisle. And then there comes... Marlise and her dad, she steps through the opening and everybody's like, oh, and then she starts walking down the aisle. And of course, we got married because we were so young, right? We were 19 and 20. And so we were among some of the first in our kind of circle of friends who got married. So there were lots of young people in, our, in, in the service and a lot of young guys who I'm sure also would have wanted to have gotten married that day, but it was my day, right? And anyway, so Marlise was walking down the aisle and imagine she's halfway down the aisle and she looks to her right, and she notices this young guy. She's like, Dad, just give me a second. And he's like, what? She's like, just give me a second. And she walks her away through the aisle, through the road to this guy, and she like starts to wink at this guy. She's like, hey, what's your name? And it's kind of flirty. And she's like, hey, I'd love to get together with you later. I'm kind of busy today, but maybe tonight. And then she grabs a, a pen and a piece of paper out of her um, wedding dress pocket and <laughs> writes down her phone number. And she's like, I'm busy today, but give me a call later tonight. Maybe we can get together. And everybody's like, What in the world's going on? And she gets back to her dad, and and they it's kind of awkward, and they continue walking, and then she looks to her left and she's this other guy. She's like, Dad, again, just give me a second. He's like, No, no, no. He's like, Yeah. And she goes, works her way through the row. And before you know it, she's sitting on this guy's lap and they're making out. Guess, yeah. And that escalated quickly, right? (laughs) At that point, we would have had to. Some of you are like, what is kissing even? Like, what? People kiss? (laughs) You guys are so holy, right? Anyways, it's okay. It's okay. And at that point, we've had to cancel the wedding, right? I mean, probably with the first guy already. And that would have been crazy. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I compared to our relationship with the Lord Jesus. In the Bible, it says that we, as the church, the body of Christ, we are set apart for the Lord Jesus, and all of natural history, which this is natural history, right? Like we're in this story, this big story that God is writing. The Bible tells us that story. There's a lot of stuff that's gone before us, and that's all going toward somewhere. The climax of whole of natural history, where all this ends, is actually a wedding. And it's in the book of Revelation, this last book in the Bible, chapter 19. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's that time when Jesus return, returns, and we, as all his children... All, this, all the believers, we will be united to God for all of eternity. I don't know how it all works, but it's God's idea. I'm sure it'll be good. We are set apart for God. And as Marlise was walking down that aisle, when we got married, obviously we were engaged. She was set apart for me, right? And she walked in that aisle. Her heart did not go out to any of the other guys. She was just walked down that aisle, She was looking at me until she stood before me or next to me, and we got married. And we've lived happily ever after it, right? Been married for 22 years now. Yes, it's awesome. It's, it is awesome. When, if, if Marlise, when she walked down that aisle, I compared to, again, I compared to our relationship with Jesus. All of us one day will come face-to-face with Jesus. Is this for me? Thank you. That's awesome. All of us one day will come face-to-face with the Lord Jesus. And right now, as we walk through the Isle of Life, as this I guess is going to get this week. As we walk through the Isle of Life, we all know there are so many things in life that are trying to draw our attention, that are fighting, that are competing for the affection of our hearts. But the Bible tells us that we are, to, in Hebrews chapter 12, walk through life with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Just as Marlise walked through that aisle, her eyes fixed on me, her heart didn't go out to any of the other guys. It was set apart for me. So in my life, as I go through life, I want to have this gaze, this focus of my heart set on Jesus. I am his. And one day when I stand before Jesus, I want to truthfully tell him, Jesus, I have loved you more than anything else. You have had the first place in my life. I am fully yours. I have loved you with an undivided heart. And there's so many things in life that are trying to get our attention, that are competing for first place in our lives. And is it wrong to have certain hobbies or passions? No, that's all fine. As long as Jesus is the number one passion of your life. Because you're the number one passion of his life. And he gave everything he had so that we in return could respond by giving all that we have. Love him wholeheartedly. Love always gives it all. It doesn't hold back. We are called to love God with all that we have and give everything to him. So that's what we're called to do, to love God with all we've got. But how do we do that? How do we love God? How do you know? How do you actually know if you love God? If I would ask you right now, do you love God? You know you'd have to say yes, right? Because we're supposed to. But can you truthfully say that you love God? And How do you know if you love God? And how, how much do you love God? Like, can you measure that? Like, how do you know if it's real? I was wondering about myself one day. I was, this was, I was in my teenage years, a long time ago, I'm old. And so I'm, one day I'm in church, and uh, every Sunday my parents would always make us go. And I was in church, and it was during the worship time, and we're singing this song. And I can't remember the song, but there was some of the there was phrase of Jesus, I love you, in the song. And as I'm singing it, all of a sudden I had this like, weird moment of like self-awareness. It's like I was hearing myself sing or whatever. And I'm realizing I'm singing, Jesus, I love you. But I, I thought, I don't know if that's actually true. And I'd heard this guy, Leonard Ravenhill. He once said, God could condemn the whole church to hell for the lies they sing on Sunday mornings. And I, yeah. And I thought, I don't want to give God one more reason to consider that. <laughs> And so I stopped singing that because I thought, I don't know if I can actually truthfully say that I love God. So I thought I should probably not sing it then. And um, so, but I'm kind of disturbed by it. And after church, I'm walking home and, and, I, and I'm thinking about this. Gosh, do I love God? And I was raised in a Christian home. I knew I was supposed to love God. I knew that was the, like the point, but I didn't know if it was real. And I was like, how do you know if it's real? How do you know if you really love God? I was like, it's not like I've ever seen him literally, like physically, or like, how do I measure? How do I know? And it really disturbed me, because I thought I'm supposed to love, but I don't know if I do. And um, the whole day, it kept coming back to me. I mean, not all the time, but it kept, during the day, it it would come back to me, and I was so disturbed by it. And um, then that evening, I went to bed, which I do most evenings in my life, and also this night. And um, it was my habit to always just kind of read a chapter in the Bible, so this night, I'm I'm laying in my bed, and I felt a little more spiritual that night. I thought, I'm going to read the whole story of the crucifixion. I'm going to read a few chapters, (laughs) quite spiritual. And uh, I thought, I'm going to read the whole story of the crucifixion. Like, from the moment Jesus was arrested to the moment he rose again. And I'm laying there in my bed. I'm just on my stomach, Bible on my pillow. And I knew the story, right? Like, I'd heard the story of the crucifixion and how he rose again and everything. But as I'm reading through it, somehow it it moves me in in a fresh way. And, and, and how all Jesus' friends abandoned him, how he suffered physically, and, and, and how he did that for me. I realized, gosh, he, he found me worth dying for, right? Like, it's, he loved me to the point of death. And it started to move me that Jesus did this, and, and I'm starting to cry. I'm tearing up a little bit. And um, then, as I'm, I'm sitting, I'm reading through this. All of a sudden, this may sound a little weird, but it's so real to me. It was like Jesus stepped into the room and it was like he stood right next to my bed. Not that I could physically see him, but I was like, "Whoa!" I knew that I knew God is with me right now. He's here. I feel his presence. And then he spoke to me very simply said, Daniel, I love you. That's all he said to me. Daniel, I love you. But it couldn't have been more profound. And when he said those words, Daniel, I love you, it pierced my heart. Like, it hit me in such a deep place. It moved me. It shook me so deeply. And, I mean, I was already kind of crying a little bit. Now I'm really crying. And I'm like, what in the world? This is incredible. Like, God is here with me. He loves me. Jesus who died, and he's here in the room with me. I, and, I, and and as I'm crying, I'm, like, really starting to cry. And then after he said that, it was like waves of warmth and love. It's like they washed over me. I just felt so loved by Jesus and and it felt so personal and real to me right because we can know in our mind that God loves us but when it hits our heart it's different like I mean we we, we can all technically reason yeah God loves me because John 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world His only sign I guess I'm part of the world he loves me yes he loves the whole world but how does he feel about you personally and here it was so personal, and it, 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 it set my heart on fire, and it's such a joy filled my heart. And so it became this weird like, mix of emotions. I was crying, but then also I, I there's such joy in my heart, I was also I had to kind of laugh. And it just became this weird mixture of emotions, and then... All of a sudden, I said, Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you, just out loud. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm saying it again. Because all day I've been wondering whether I could actually say it. And I'm catching myself saying it again. But this time it felt different. It felt like natural. It felt like it just flowed out of my heart. And so as soon as I thought, I'm saying it again. I don't know if I can, but it feels right. Right at that moment, a Bible verse drops into my mind. And it's 1 John 4, verse 19. And it says there, We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And I learned this big lesson there that night. It takes God to love God. It takes God to love God. You cannot love God in your own strength. You can't work it up. You can't make it happen. You can't reach in and flick a switch in your heart. You can't go like, Like, and just kind of work it up and, all right, now I'm going to love God. You, You can't do that not just the choice you make it's a response you were not created to initiate love but you were created to respond to love and here's the way it works when we get a revelation of God's love for us it fills our hearts with love with which we can love him back when you get a revelation of God's love for you personally and i mean a little more than just head knowledge. When it, when it comes down and, and hits differently, right? When it hits your heart, you get revelation of the love, like personal experience of God's love for you. It fills your hearts with love, with now with which you can love him back. The natural response to his love is love returned. And you grow in love for God When you grow in revelation of His love for you. You grow in passion for Jesus when you grow in understanding His emotions and His passion towards you. And so we love Him because He first loved us. After that night, I never questioned whether I loved Jesus. Because I never questioned that He loved me. We need revelation of God's love for us personally. And when that hits us, when that fills our hearts then we can love him back. Guys, God really loves you. He does. He likes you too. His love is unconditionally. It's unconditional. I don't know how he did it, but he puts something in each one of you that makes him look at you again, again, again. He's drawn to you. All he wants is your nearness. He didn't need to create us. He was perfectly content without us. But he wanted us. And he wanted you. You are not a mistake. Yeah, they're accidental parents. There's no such thing as an accidental child. God wanted you here. He chose that you would be part of this story that he is writing. And Jesus died for you. He loved you to the point of death. He found you worth dying for. There's nothing like this love. There's nothing that satisfies as this love. It's what all of us were created for. All of us were born with an emptiness that can only be filled by the love of God. Only God will satisfy. Nothing else will do it. Oh, guys, I think that's my wife right there. (laughs) that's Marlies (laughs) she's the one she's the one Uh, you threw me off Marlies it's okay and it's out of this heart connect this intimacy with God that all ministry flows he wants us to work from a place of love not for love not to earn it not to impress him but from a place of love, with hearts on fire. Now, I'm from the Netherlands. I told you guys that. And um, we have a king in the Netherlands. And I, I don't know him, but I know a few things about him, right? I know his name. I know that he was, I have to actually look at my notes on that. That he was born April 27th, 1967, that's when the King was of the Netherlands War. I know he represents, officially, the kingdom of the Netherlands. I love, he loves skiing. He's a pilot. I know his wife is from Argentina. I know he's got three daughters. I know things about him, but I don't know him. If I met him, somebody would have to connect us, to introduce me. I don't have a relationship with him. And it can be the same with God. You can know stuff about him without actually knowing him. And you never want to settle for just knowing mere facts about God. You want real heart connect with God. John, in his later life, he says this, and it's like his life conclusion. He says this, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. I, that's like my life vision. At the end of my life, i want to gather, I'm gonna, like when I'm old, I'm already old. But like when I'm really old, and I'm about to check out of life, I'm going to gather all my kids and their husbands and wives and Uh, One husband, hopefully, because I have one daughter. Husband and wives, and and, and their children, and their children, however far back it goes. And they can bring all their pet dogs. No cats, I hate cats. They can bring all their dogs and everybody, and we'll all gather in my house. And at the end of my life, this will be my conclusion. This is what I want to tell them. And I want to look them in the eyes and say, guys, truly, our fellowship is with God himself. This thing is really, really real. We have genuine heart connection with God. I love God, and He loves me. Again, Christianity is not this system of rules. It's a love affair. It's a real relationship with a real person, and that's what we were created for. The theologian J.I.P. He said, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. God doesn't want to be that familiar stranger. He wants you to truly know Him. He wants to be known by you. I want to know God. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, it says this. And he's, this is one of those messages to church communities. And he says this in Revelation 3.20. He said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, this verse is often used in the context of evangelism, right? And sometimes it gets a little pathetic. It's like, oh, poor little Jesus. He's outside at the door of your heart knocking. And it's cold out there. Maybe just be nice and let him in. Poor old Jesus. And maybe it's okay to use it that way. I don't know. But this verse was written to Christians. It wasn't written to unbelievers. this is Jesus saying to Christians, I'm at the door of your heart. I'm knocking on your heart. Let me in. I want fellowship with you. Don't keep me at a distance. And if you fully open your heart, I will come in. I will fellowship with you. And he says this to all of them. He says, if anyone hears my voice, anyone opens the heart and responds to me, I will come in. And he says that to you guys. He is knocking at the door of your heart. You're hearing your DTS and he's knocking. He's asking. Open the door. Open it wider. Open it all the way. Don't hold back at all. Let me in. Let me in. I will fellowship with you. I will come. I'm right there. He's knocking at the door of your heart. because He wants nearness. He wants to come close. In uh, Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus is telling this parable. And he says this. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. I love this story. I can just imagine a guy, maybe just kind of plowing away on his field. All of a sudden, he bumps into something. He's like, Wonder, what's this? And he digs up this treasure. Is my microphone good? Uh, You guys hear me? Okay, sounds off. All right, good. I'm great. Good. Glad you guys hear me. He finds this treasure. And he's so excited, he looks around, nobody saw him, he puts it back in the ground. Then it says he goes, he sells all that he has over joy of the treasure. So he, uh, it's pretty radical, so that he can buy the land and have the treasure. And Because so he's, he's so excited. So he sells his house or whatever he had, his bed, his, ma, his favorite mug, his teddy bear that his mommy gave him when he left the house. Like everything he's got. He sells everything So that he can scrape enough money together to buy that field so that he can have the treasure. Right? He radically sells, gets rid of everything just to have the treasure. And it's a picture of our relationship with Jesus. Guys, there is such a treasure in Jesus and in knowing him. And it says, I love this about the passage. When he finds a treasure, he hides it. And it says, and for joy over the treasure... He goes and sells everything he has. There is such a joy found in the treasure that enabled him to sell everything. Guys, there is such a joy, such a fulfillment, such just an incredible satisfaction in knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ. When you experience that joy, It empowers you to give up everything else because everything pales in comparison. Everything pales in comparison. And you were created for that. C.S. Lewis, he said, we were all created with this emptiness inside, like a hole inside that can only be filled by the love of God. Nothing else will satisfy us. And if we've not personally experienced this love of God, then you're left empty. There's there's this hole that's left. You're left hungry. And guys, you know this. When you're hungry, you'll eat bad things. (laughs) And some of you, you've eaten bad things. Desperately searching for love, but looking in all the wrong places. And it will never satisfy. Why do we sin? Because it feels good, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't sin initially. But it doesn't satisfy. feels good for the moment, but it's always a letdown. Only the love of God satisfies. Only the love of God satisfies. And so in walking this Christian life, it's not so much just about saying no to sin. It's laying hold of the satisfaction of the knowledge and richness of God and His love for you personally. Battle against sin was won 2,000 years ago. Our battle is not as much against sin as it is a battle of remaining satisfied in God Because sin is simply what we do when we're not satisfied in God. Sin is simply what you do when you're not satisfied in God. So find your fulfillment in God. Throw everything at Him. And it'll be so worth it. So we were created to love God, right? That's our primary calling. Your calling is to love Him with all that you've got. With all your heart, soul, mind and strength. God just being thorough. He's like, I want everything. (laughs) Love me with all you've got. And we can only do that when we've received his love. You can't work it up in your own strength. You can't do it in your own strength. But when we receive the love of God, it fills us with love with which we can love him back. Now we love him. And then what happens is it helps us to love ourselves, to see ourselves in a different way. Because God is the ultimate authority. You are not what you do. You're not what you have. You're not what people say about you. You are what God says about you, right? And so when you listen to God and what he says about you, and how he feels about you, you'll start seeing yourself from his perspective. And so, it helps you with that identity piece. And then the next thing that happens is that you become a more loving person. You will start other, loving other people well. And also, that's what God wants. He's like, the first commandment is that we love the Lord our God. And the second, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. For many of us, that's exactly the problem. We hate ourselves, and we hate our neighbors. Yeah. But he wants us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves in a healthy way. I want to encourage you guys to love each other, to fight for each other in this season. And your staff, you guys have an amazing leadership team here in this school and they they're praying for you they're fighting for you and life's hard enough like we need friends and people that will fight for us and stand with us and in this season it's awesome you're not alone and you've got people that can fight for you and help you and will celebrate your victories and your breakthroughs i want to encourage you guys to be intentional to love each other and now it's all still new right and first week everything is awesome for the most part and then things change <laughs> And the roommate gets annoying, and he snores, or smells, or doesn't clean up after herself, or whatever it is. And you have to choose to love each other. You know, you can love anybody. You can. I, there was a time the Lord was speaking to me about it. I was, it was in my teenage years, again, a long time ago, because I'm old. But I went on this mission trip, and it was, we went to Spain with a group of about 30 teenagers, and it was this YM mission trip, and it was super fun. A lot of my friends were on that trip, and then also a bunch of people I didn't know, and we it was like this five-week trip, and um, it was great. We saw the Lord move. We did evangelism. Some people get saved and healed. It's really neat stuff, and um, it's just a fun adventure. We're in this other country and all of that, and then, but then there was this one girl that really annoyed me. I just couldn't stand her, and as the Trip went on four or five weeks. It just got worse and worse. So I'm a few weeks into this trip, and I'm just so annoyed by this girl, and I don't know what to do. She is so loud and obnoxious, and I can't stand it. I'm just too introverted for this girl. And she's always loud, always talking, and she was always making these jokes, like super silly jokes. I didn't think they were funny at all, but she thought they were funny. And then she would laugh so loud. And, and I was young, but I already learned it's not cool when you tell a joke and you're the one laughing the loudest. And so I thought, this girl's not cool. And then it was also the way she laughed. It always m- reminded me of a certain animal. She, it was like, she's <coughs> like this. She sounded like a pig. And, and it, it just it bugged me. And so it just went on and on and on. Every time in the most, I thought, inappropriate times, she would... Make those jokes, and you'd hear, (coughs) just like this. And after a while, I just couldn't stand it anymore. And uh, so one day, I go to one of the staff on our team, and I said, hey, can I talk to you? And he's like, sure. I said, I have a problem. He's like, sure. And he's like, come outside. And so uh, me and this guy, we go outside, and we sit on the curb by the road. And he said, what's the problem? I said, this girl's the problem. And he's like, oh, tell me. And so I tell him. I plead my case. I said, have you heard her laugh? And her jokes, and I said, she just won't stop. And just goes on and on and this and this. And she like laughs loud, She's like, sounds like a pig and, and just never quiet and blah, blah, And I'm just telling him everything, how terrible she is. And he's listening. And, um, and then he's like, hmm, let me think. What can we do? And I thought, yeah, what can we do? And I, I thought he had options, right? I mean, he could send her home. <laughs> Silence fast. I, that would maybe work rebuke public rebuke or something or whatever i felt like he had options so he's thinking for a little bit i'm just eager to hear what you know how he what he's going to do and he said i've got an idea so i'm like i'm leaning in what are we going to do batter and he said this is what i think you should do he said why don't you every day start praying for this girl and ask god how he sees that girl and how he feels about her i thought that's weak leadership uh, that's weak leadership. I said, I'm not the problem. She's the problem, right? Like, I don't, I thought that was weak leadership. I didn't tell him. I couldn't tell him that. And what am I going to say? No, I'm not going to pray for her. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll pray. But I was I was a little discouraged. I, I thought that was not dealing with the problem. And um, But I said, yes, sure, I'll do it. I'll pray for him. And he said, great. Then let's check in in a few days and see what's ha- what happens. And I'm like, Sure. So that night, I go to bed like I do almost every night of my life. And um, so we're all staying in this church there in Spain. And all the guys, we slept in the the main auditorium. And we had all these air mattresses. And uh, we're sleeping on the floor there. And the girls were down the hallway in one of the classrooms. And they all slept there. So that night, I go to bed. And I remember, I've got to pray for this girl, right? And so I'm praying. And I don't remember exactly the words I used but the spirit of it was, God, break in and fix this girl, right? I'm like calling on God's name, show us your power, do a miracle, change this girl. And I'm praying, and I feel great because it's me and God against this girl. And, and I feel real good about this. I'm praying for God to change her, to intervene. And, um, and then I remember I have to ask how he feels about her. And so I end, oh, yeah, God, and show me how you feel about her and, and see her and whatever. Amen. And I go to bed. I feel great. Then next morning, like real early in the morning, we the guys in the in the, the church hall where we wake up. We we wake up suddenly. We're jolted awake by screams coming from down the hallway from the girls. And so the guys, we jump up and they're screaming. And we run over. Several of us guys run over there. And turns out that that night, this girl passed away in her sleep. Yeah, right there in the classroom. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't. <laughs> <laughs> She didn't. (laughs) I'm just making sure you're still awake. (laughs) She didn't die. (laughs) She didn't die, all right? She's still alive. That's not what happened. (laughs) And I know this is so basic, but. You know what happened. I started praying for her every night and God actually answered my prayer because she was not the problem. I was the problem. I was the problem. And God actually did show me how he sees her, how he feels her. And I realized, gosh, God loves this girl. He loves this girl. And when I started seeing her through God's eyes, it did something in my heart and I started to love this girl. And believe it or not, by the end of this trip, we became great friends. And even her jokes became funny to me. And we would laugh together. She'd be like, (laughs) and I would just kind of laugh normally. And we would just laugh together. And we became dear friends. And her name is Marlise, and we married. No, no. (laughs) No, also not true. That's not true. (laughs) That's also, that's not true. (laughs) Okay. Okay, easy. <laughs> That's not true. Her name is not Merlise. It's another girl. <laughs> Anyways, all of that experience, as basic as it was, it did teach me something that like God loves people and we can love everybody. And so if your roommate just annoys the heck out of you, or maybe your staff is difficult to your personality or whatever it is. Oh, are we okay? Oh, there's a (laughs) gecko. It's fine. I don't care. Oh, you can't concentrate on me. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I learned. (laughs) Thanks. He's still there. I learned that it, it doesn't matter who they are. You can love them if you choose to do so. You have to choose to love them. And if somebody greatly annoys you, it probably has a bit more to do with you than with that person. And so love each other. Choose to love one another, right? I, many times if somebody really annoys me, I actually have great faith. Gosh, I can actually turn all these emotions around and love that person. <laughs> love each other. Fight for one another and for your breakthrough. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand and we're going to pray. So when somebody asks you, what is your calling? To love God. That's what we're called to do. We are called to love God with all we have. What is the most important thing to God? That we love Him. So then what, we, what should be the most important thing in our lives? That we love God, right? It's the first and greatest commandment. It takes God to love God. So we want to receive His love so that we can love God. That's what you were created for. We'll talk more about it tomorrow. But today, in our hearts, I would love for us to have a moment where we resolve, put a resolve in our hearts and say, Lord, I want to love you in my life. I want to be determined. I want the the, the primary pursuit of my life to be love. That we put in our lives the first commandment in first place. Right? We want to be people that put the first commandment in first place, just as Jesus wanted. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to take some time just to... So just in our hearts to talk to the Lord about this, yeah? So God, we, we just come before you this morning and say, God, we we want to love you. J- Jesus, you loved us to the point of death. God, you are love. And we know that you created us to love you. And we want to be those who put the first commandment in first place. We want to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So God, I ask that you would help us to determine in our hearts that we were going to seek and pursue your love to love you well. Just take some time, just in your own language, just talk to the Lord a little bit about this. Whatever is in your heart to say to the Lord right now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to know more about DTS and Fire and Fragrance, you can check out our website at ywamkona.com or reach out to us on our social media platforms. For more on identity and the Father's love, stay right here on the Fire and Fragrance podcast.